This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 163, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Alex Baluta, CEO at Flowcap, to talk about a new virgin topic we haven't discussed before, venture debt. What is commonly called venture capital is more often than not really venture equity, of course, for the simple reason that early stage firms are high risk and generally lack assets or cash flow which one could lend against. However, clearly venture debt is a thing, both as bridging loans until the next raise and for certain classes of unlisted company. It must be a thing, otherwise Alex would be going hungry if it wasn't and he doesn't look that thin, although he doesn't look as large as I either after all this lockdown. So without further ado, let's walk into, for the London FinTech podcast anyway, and maybe for many of you, what is terra incognita? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Alex. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So before we get on to the minor matter of whether there is such a thing as your day job, let's just take it as sort of that maybe there is a day job that you're doing over there. On this matter of lockdown expansion of waste at, at, at my end, you're looking rather a, rather trimmer than not too lean, which makes me think there is such a thing as venture debt after all. And I happen to notice that either you've given up a career in boxing as you're weaving around a lot, or... Or with my blinding insight, I decided that you have a standing desk. Yeah, I apologize. It probably is, I imagine, quite distracting. I, I tend to be a fidgety person, and so I move from side to side. I'm not really sure what causes it, but you're right. I am at a stand-up desk. I've been standing up now for two or three years at a stand-up desk, and I, I love it. In fact, sometimes I get stuck. I get just so deep into a topic, and three hours later, I realize I'm still standing, and I'm now starting to get sore calves and sore knees and sore muscles and and I force myself to sit down, but I, it's a, I would strongly encourage it. One of the uh, great things about being a podcast on a successful podcast is that you get to speak to amazing human beings. And like everything in life, no matter how thinly you slice it, it's got two sides. So on the one hand, you get to sport, speak to great human beings, as I just said. But on the other hand, you spend all your life speaking to amazing people who can do stuff. And then you, you, know, you go back and you look in the mirror yourself and you're, sort of, you're looking like one of those sort of very sad looking spaniels. So I too can boast, I too can boast to the listeners that I am actually at a sitting, haha, Freudian slip, Freudian slip there. I am at a standing desk, uh, <laughs> although I have to actually admit to everybody, myself included, that it hasn't stood for quite a while actually, like home exercise equipment in general, one buys it with the best of intentions. And I didn't really stick with it. I mean, I thought it was quite good because it doesn't freeze your joints into one place, which sitting down does terribly for just, especially now we're all in lockdown, you work from home, mumble, mumble, whatever it is. It's really bad not moving. Mine goes up and down nice and easily, so it's not a problem like that. I don't quite know why I gave it up, but I think I gave it up because I did start to sort of suffer with problems with knees and hips and joints and all that kind of stuff. So if you sit down and not move, that ain't very good. But if you stand up and not move, which is maybe why you've developed your boxer's gait, then you're just in another fixed position. And that hurts as well as shop assistants will tell you if you're yep. to stand up at a checkout. Yep. All day. Two things you can do. One, set a timer on your phone or on your computer every 45 minutes and the timer goes off and you just sit or you stand. Second thing is, and Amazon's amazing for this, buy a one inch thick foam pad, roughly two feet by four feet, 
and that becomes a pad you stand on. And, and that, that really, you know, that I wear sneakers, um, everything I can do to lessen the stress on my joints. And honestly, you know, when you get into it, uh, you won't even notice it. It's just, it's just part of your everyday life. So good luck. That's all I can say. Well, well, funny you should mention that, but I did do a little bit of research at the, the time as to what was going wrong, and I was probably going wrong a little bit before three or four hours, and I did actually buy a, a pad, which I've just looked around my study, and actually can, I can see it, and I was using that, so often um, the universe provides to us what we need, even if we don't recognise it. Uh, I shall go away feeling very guilty from this, and I shall, uh, I shall give it another, another go, actually, so that's probably uh, quite motivating. So when did you get into standing for a living, as it were, no pun intended. You know, I, I'm in my mid-50s now, and I like to think that I'm getting a little bit wiser, but I'm also getting a little bit wider. There's just so many distractions every day, and in fact, I've gotten back into cycling. So when I was younger, I used to do what were called duathlons, which is bike run. I didn't do a triathlon because I would probably sink to the bottom of the pond and, and never come back. So I, I did just the bike run, and I, 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 I lo- it was just, I always... I'm the kind of person that gets into a zone and I lose track of time. And it was, it was, um, and then I gave it up. I had a family, had kids, got distracted, got work. And, you know, 20 years later, I just realized that I need to do something. And so stand-up desk was the first step towards getting back into shape. And then I got back into cycling. And what's terrifying is how slow the metabolism is when you get north of that 5-0. So I'm, I'm doing all I can to try and... <laughs> try and wrap it back up and this is just one of those uh steps. Well, doing, you're doing a great job because uh, i would guess that you're 40 something rather than 50 something and, and and i feel more like about uh, 70 something myself i got into it for the, same, for the same reasons i did read something i've completely forgotten the stats but it was some phenomenal thing which is if you know if you stand a few hours a day it's the same as i don't know a million mars bars per annum or, or something like that or five thousand pints of lager or something so it seemed to be sort of quite a good deal so coming on to the career journey. What led you to venture debt? It's actually the culmination of probably about 20, 25 years of uh, evolution in, in, in my own personal interests. I actually started as a software developer. So I, I, I had an undergrad IT degree, worked for three years with some of the big IT software development houses back in the late, mid to late 90s, and really wasn't that, it, it wasn't the passion that I wanted. And I, I was much more interested in finance. I wanted to be at the intersection of financial services and technology. I found there was a gap in, in, in the marketplace, at least I thought there was. So I went back for an MBA in French, actually. Not that that's helped me. I could barely speak English, let alone French. But I went back for an MBA and came back out and I wanted to join venture capital, but I actually went down the route of uh, investment banking. And I became a, a stock analyst, an equity analyst, which is a fascinating job. You get to talk to amazing, amazing individuals. It's a bit of a self-selection bias because all the best stocks, all the best companies are the ones that rise to the top. And when they're public, those are the ones that you cover. And so I was an analyst at firms like Merrill Lynch and, and Robertson Stevens. And this was right around Internet 1.0. And it was really inspiring. In fact, to the point where as an analyst, you're the story, you're the reporter, not the story. And I really wanted to be the story. And so I tried a couple of entrepreneurial adventures, which failed miserably, but taught me a lot. And got back into financial services. And, and so post being an analyst, I moved into a little bit of, of entrepreneurship and then I moved in onto what's called the buy side. So I was on the sell side, meaning writing uh, equity research uh, for people to, to make investment recommendations. Then the buy side, I started making direct investments. I, I started a company called Temperance Capital, which does mezzanine debt, not quite venture debt, but mezzanine debt. And then uh, a couple of years ago joined uh, Flow Capital, 
to get more into the high growth venture debt side. So it's been a it's been an evolution. It's primary. It's for the last 25, 30 years. It's been in financial services all the way along. But I, I love what I do. I think I found the right place finally. Good. And in terms of buy and sell side, I was on the buy side myself oh, about 30 years ago. And then I moved to group management, not, not being in, bothering to go to the other side of the fence. And <laughs> I vividly remember when I was just joined group management, the early days of group risk when no one knew what risk was. I did make the suggestion that if we've got such good analysts and their forecasts are so good, then maybe we should take some of Climate's capital and put it in their... Uh, Put it in their recommendations because surely it would do well. There was lots of coughing and spluttering and and looking at shoes and, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, God, who's this sort of stupid boy that's turned up from the uh, from the management side? And, and of course, don't know how it is over there, but it didn't take me too long to realise that the the function of equity analysts, certainly in the eighties, early nineties, in the London market, wasn't because amazingly enough they knew whether BP was going to go up and Shell was going to go down or vice versa, relative or absolute or, or whatever you want. It was, of course, to generate business for corporate finance because, funnily enough, you've got some corporate finance deals and they go, people will pay megabucks, whereas uh, even for the best research, it was sort of going for sort of roughly, uh, roughly free. Since the turn of the century, I guess, there's been some rules put in place to... Th- th- there were definitely conflicts. And, and it's a cynical view that it was only about financial, uh, you know, generating big, uh, uh, the big ticket in terms of investment banking. But, like, you're right, it was. It doesn't mean we didn't do good work. And it doesn't mean, you know, that we didn't have to be knowledgeable in what we did. It just meant that the motivations were a little bit different. That's changed, I think. Probably not a sector or a job I'd like now. I think it's less rewarding, uh, more constrained. But no, you're you're 100% right. There was there was a time back in the late 80s, early 90s, where it was uh, there were multiple different conflicting motivations for that role, and you had to you had to walk a, a pretty narrow line. Yes, and I think also I've been going. I mean, I'm not very flattering, but I was I think with hindsight I wasn't completely right because I think there was a misunderstanding of the the nature of buy side and sell side insofar as a good piece of research will give the fund manager great insight into the company and what's going on, to which the fund manager applies a broader understanding of what the firm's views are on the dollar, the market, interest rates, the economy, and that kind of stuff, and then uses that background macroeconomic view to inform the the stock selection. Whereas, so it's top down as it were, if you're a, a researcher in the oil sector, your job is to know a hell of a lot about Shell and a hell of a lot about BP. I mean, that, that in itself does not mean that you know whether Shell and BP are going to outperform every other stock in the stock market. How could you possibly know that? You know, that, that is actually the critical insight that, I, that you're bang on. What I realized was the way I dealt with my clients, which would be the, hedge fund, the fund managers, hedge, mutual, whatever, I wouldn't say buy this or sell that. I would never pound the table. And in fact, your sales reps would say, you know, I want a table pounding recommendation. And, and it wasn't my style. My style was more, look, I'm going to do the best I can to know everything about the sector and these 12 companies that I cover or 20. And then I'm going to download my information to you so that you can make the best decision that you can make, Mr. or Mrs. Fund Manager, with the information that I give you. So it's, it's not about me saying, close your eyes and buy it. Just do it. That's not, I never, ever in my life made that recommendation. It was always about, look, here's a good side. Here's the bad side. Here's why I could go up. Here's why I could go down. Hopefully that information has helped you and, and off you go. So, and that worked for me. I, I had a really good career and some really great relationships. So, but that's a very interesting insight. I think a lot of people don't see that. They don't understand that that role was really a, an informational middleman role 
rather than just a stock recommendation. Yes, so getting away from the equity side and moving on to the debt side, let's just start off with some simple definitions and let's oversimplify it. We can have the sophistication as we go on. So uh, as I said in the introduction, certainly over here, and I'm sure probably in North America as well, the phrase venture capital is well known and by and large and in general, venture capital probably the vast majority of the time is what you might actually in these terms call venture equity, which is you've got an idea to start a new business tomorrow, I've got a fund, you persuade me to give you a million or something like that and as on day one you have nothing, I couldn't possibly lend you anything anyway unless I took a sort of a, a personal guarantee off you, which is, which is just a separate matter and, and banks do do that. Now if venture capital was broadly known as funds for venture firms, as it were, then you would have below venture capital, presumably venture equity and venture debt. And venture capital would be the sort of the big brother and presumably the venture debt uh, would be the smaller one on the side. Just starting from that perspective, if we say that venture capital is the sum of venture equity and venture debt, what percent in your market in Canada or North America or around the world or wherever, roughly what sort of percentage are we talking of venture firms handing over equity and handing over debt before we get into sophistications like prefs and, uh, and all, all sort of mixed mix things? It's small. It's, it's probably on the order of 10 to 1 of the ratio. So, you know, at least 10x, the, the venture equity version marketplace is probably 10 plus times bigger than the venture debt market. And you're right, it gets blurry on the edges where you have some bank type institutions trying to come into the venture debt side. But, but if you just, if you, if you take some broad definitions, venture equity is at least 10 times larger than venture debt. I don't have the exact numbers, but I've read and seen a lot of research that would suggest it's it's north of 10 times. Okay, well, let's forget the venture equity folks who have it easy. They walk into a casino, they chuck some money on some numbers and some of the numbers come good. And let's put equity to one side and let's just drill into this venture debt stuff then, which is, is certainly in the UK market less well known. So a little bit more sophistication. What is venture debt as such? If I start a new business, I've been talking for the last few shows about doing a hoodies business. I'm going to do London FinTech hoodies. I'm going to make them the global fashion accessory. I need some funding for my business at the various stages. So what is what is venture debt? If I come back to you in a couple of months time and say, hey, Alex, uh, can Flowcap give me some venture debt? What is it you actually give me in return for what? Start with the simple definition of what traditional venture debt was, and it really is debt. And it's debt that supports the equity and provides you an extended runway to another event, specifically for venture-funded companies. So think of it as a bridge to the next round, a bridge to an IPO, a bridge to a sale. And the reason that the venture capital company who's already invested and management will take venture debt is because they're confident in their, in their future success. They have the cash flow to, to, to take it. But most importantly is they're postponing the dilutive impact of, a, of another equity round until such time as the valuation goes higher. So if you've got, uh, just pick random numbers, your company is worth 50 million today on 10 million in revenue, let's say, so you're trading at five times revenue and you can do an equity round now and based on the amount of money you want to raise, you'll, you'll, be, you'll dilute the existing shareholders by 30%, let's say. But if you took a couple of million dollars of, of, of venture debt, and you postpone that equity round, that net ex, net, next equity round for another two years or 18 months, your valuation might be now 100 million or 150 million as opposed to 50 million. And so when you're raising that next round of capital, you're diluting existing shareholders less. So that's the classic reason of why you would use venture debt. And just on the classic one, the way you're explaining it there, from 
a different perspective, which is how you finance bigger companies, in a sense, sounds completely obvious. Because if you work with any corporate finance textbook, uh, I'm not a great fan of all these sort of theories, they're all far too simplified, but never mind. If you open a, a textbook or you do an MBA, and you know, you've got a, a company with a billion dollars of revenue, only a lunatic would fund that 100% equity. <laughs> because you'd want the leverage from having the debt. Now, you know, there's all sorts of silly and simple formulas about X percent equities and Y percent debt is the most efficient. And yeah, yeah. Okay, they're, they're all sort of simple simple models and they get you going. They aren't, they aren't the right answer. So in bigger businesses, it's axiomatic that unless you're crazy, you have a mixture of equity and debt. However, when you're starting your new business tomorrow morning, you will have to start at... 100% equity, one way or another, even, even if it's just you working for, for free, it amounts to the same thing. So just looking over the life cycle, so your new business starts tomorrow, and then in 10 years' time you float it on the stock market. Forgetting everything else, uh, at what stage on that spectrum anyway would a business, even if there wasn't such a thing as floating an IPO and, and, and yada, 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 at what stage in a growth of your business would you start thinking, okay, look, it's inefficient, it's expensive to fund this 100% equity. I Forget venture debt, forget these things. I should just be having some, some fixed interest loans in there to, to gear up the capital. It's a bit of a gray area as to is there a perfect time to take venture debt. Some venture, ca- venture debt investors will invest when the company is burning a lot of cash, when there's no runway visibility to cash flow positive. Others will insist on either being cash flow positive at the time of investment or the investment that they give you gets you to cash flow positive. And so there's different risks, just like venture capitalists invest in seed or A or B or C or whatever stage, you have that same approach in venture debt. You'll have earlier stage venture debt and later stage venture debt. So you can always ask. And if you're a company and, and you're looking for capital and, and you're comfortable in your prospects, I would ask, see, go, go and pitch some of the venture debt providers. The ones that are more tolerant of risk will invest earlier. You'll pay more for it. There is no hard and fast rule. For us at Flow, look, we invest in growth. It's all about the growth. And so we, we prefer to see companies that can at least, that they're not paying the interest on our debt with the money that we've given them, there's got to be generating some cash flow in the business, uh, but they don't have to be fully profitable yet. And in a situation where it's backed by very large venture capital companies, we'd be willing to take more risk. So one of the things you have to understand, I think it's worth mentioning about tr- the traditional venture debt market is it really piggybacks on venture capital. So the venture capitalists have as their objective, as their business model, it's about taking high growth companies and forcing a liquidity event within a short period of time. Short being three to seven years, depending on when they invest. The venture debt player is really just piggybacking on that. Their customer actually isn't the company. Their customer is the venture capital company. So when the venture capital company says, I've got another deal I'd like for you to bridge to the next round, give me your best terms, and they give them 10 leads a year or 20 leads a year, that venture debt company is really servicing the venture capital company, not the, not the, not the company they're investing in. And so, so they're just really playing the game of as long as that big venture capital company is, is going to take me out if things go wrong or get us a liquidity event, I'm willing to give them 12% money. So it's, there's a very strong, tight relationship in the traditional venture debt market between venture capitalists and venture debt providers. That's very interesting, and I think, it's a, as you explained it very clearly, that it's a very important point to understand about the market. In that, I don't know if you're a uh, 
if you are growing fintech and you go to your local bank and you say, can you lend me some money, please? They'll put their credit analyst on the case and they look at your balance sheet and all, all the numbers and, and all that kind of jazz and come up with their own things. Whereas, as you, as you explained it there, in terms of within the industry, uh, if your venture debt guy knows a venture capital firm very well and trusts them uh, and all that kind of jazz, then it gives you a much greater confidence than just looking at a spreadsheet will ever give you uh, about what happened, and, and you're implying there's all sorts of terms that one can put in there. Just, just to give a feel of, you quite rightly say, of course, that the risk obviously relates to how much you have to charge, but I, ha- I have no feel at all. What is the sort of range of spreads over LIBOR that venture debt generally comes at? You know, if I am a super unrisky proposition, can I get venture debt at LIBOR plus one, or LIBOR plus five, or LIBOR plus ten? Uh, and, you know, before it gets too silly. What's the sort of riskier end of venture debt? Is that, you know, libel plus 50%? Give or take. Great question. It's about size and scale. So, you know, we have a, uh, we tend to do deals in the one to five million ranges is a smaller end of the spectrum, but you got companies like Silicon Valley Bank, which I'm sure you've heard of literally based out of Silicon Valley in the U S and they've, they've grown to be a very, very big bank on the back of doing venture debt essentially partnering with venture capital companies. and But they will do deals of 30 or $40 million in venture debt. The, comp- the underlying entities themselves are hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And they'll give you LIBOR plus one. They'll give you, they'll give you incredibly cheap rates. They may or may not take warrants, but you're talking about just slightly above bank mortgage rates at the cheapest end of the spectrum. To use the example you used earlier, you're a very early stage company. You've just founded your company a year ago. You've gotten some traction. You may not even be able to get venture debt because you don't have the capacity. But if you do, it might be in the high teens at the other end of the spectrum. Not high teens over LIBOR, but total uh, interest uh, in the 15, 16, 17. And there may be 30% warrant coverage on top of that. So if if I give you a million dollars, you pay me 15% interest and you give me 25% warrant coverage, which means you give me warrants with uh, uh, $250,000 of warrants at a strike price equal to your last equity round or some equity valuation that we agreed to. And, and we can talk a little bit more about what some of the bells and whistles are in terms of debt and whether it's amortizing or not amortizing or perpetual. But your initial question in terms of the headline interest rate, it could be anywhere from 5% to 18%, 19 20%. And it really depends on the risk profile of the company at the time of investment. Sure. So coming back to this uh, initial simple model of uh, equity versus debt uh, and the gearing in a, in a company in general and uh, as people who are background in FS would, would know e- equity capital might to the newbie look look cheap because your dividend rate may be lower but actually the, the real cost of equity capital is much higher and therefore people gear it with uh, fixed income borrowings. In a sense what you're talking about here with the sort of Silicon Valley Bank you know LIBOR plus one is, is very high quality loan uh, and you're saying up to 20%, but importantly with the warrants. Going away from the sort of simple binary model of there's this thing called equity and there's this thing called debt, you're really talking when you're you're warranting about something which is a hybrid of, of equity and debt. It's got some sort of equity optionality or in there. The warrants are really a kicker for us. It's a sweetener for us. It's a it's an ability for us to participate in the upside. Now remember, we the warrants are effectively a, a delay, an option on an equity round. And when we exercise our warrants, we do have to pay the company for those for those shares. So it's a small equity kicker that comes along with the interest rate. But but we don't we don't make most of our to be honest, we don't make most of our return 
in the industry, venture debt, most of the return doesn't come from warrants. It comes from the interest rate and the minimizing the default rate. So for us, you know, even if we're making a, an interest rate of 18% across all our investments, we've got a high default rate that chews into the return very, very quickly. One way to look at it is you might be able to get 12% return across all your investments on interest and then another three points of return through the warrants. So your, your IRR is 15% overall on your portfolio, net of any, any losses that you might have, 12 of which comes from interest and three comes from warrants. So that's a rough rule of thumb that you'll see in the industry. Okay, so looking at it from a, um, a buy side perspective, from a sort of fund manager's perspective, you guys are creating, are you creating it for yourselves or for your clients? Do you have sort of funds in the way that venture capital things have funds or your balance sheet lender? We're a slightly different structure. We're actually a public company. And, and so we, we invest the equity that we've raised. And, and we did that because we can get into it later. But we, we also have, a, there's venture debt amortizing, venture debt bullet. And then there's, there's what we call a royalty, which is actually a perpetual piece of debt. It's much closer to equity. And our challenge when you're doing a royalty is that you have a duration mismatch. So if, if I'm using funding that's got a five-year term on it and I invest that into perpetual investments and my funding sources now need liquidity, I have a duration mismatch. So we actually went the equity route, but generally we've raised money from other parties and we invest on their behalf. And we're getting large enough now where we're co-investing alongside LPs and subordinating our capital. But it's, it is, for simplicity, a different spin on your typical LPGP structure that most venture capital funds have as well. Yes, it's interesting because the previous episode to this one, Draper Esprit in, in London, who are AIM listed and have got the patient capital model, Augmentum PLC were on a year ago and they have the more patient type of equity capital. So that's useful background. Putting that to one side, you've you got a pool of capital and you're doing high risk lending for getting you know, sort of complicated things. So you presumably need to have a pretty diversified portfolio to smooth out the sort of the th huge lumps. I mean, for the sake of argument, Let's say you've got ten loans in there, and they're you know they're, they're giving you twelve percent above LIBOR. Well, if one of those goes, it's not a good day, and if two of them goes, you're a bit screwed, really. So, do you have to have large portfolios in terms of numbers of deals to do this? Yeah. So let's just pick a target IRR of eighteen percent. There's two ways to get there. You can have a very very narrow distribution around that eighteen percent, so you have very few losses and very few big winners. So very narrow distribution, or you can have a very wide distribution where you have a bunch of home runs and a bunch of losses. So, you know, even a 30% default rate in a wide distribution can still get you to an IRR of 18 as long as you have some winners on the right side of the, of the curve. The challenge for that is how much stomach do your investors have for either a wide or a narrow distribution. So if you want a narrower distribution, you go to the safer end of the curve, you invest in only venture-sponsored deals, you're getting lower interest rate, but you're getting a very low default rate. So at the most conservative end, you'll see companies doing a 3%, 4% default rate. We historically played at the more aggressive end where we were asking for higher returns, but we had a higher default rate. And you can get into the teens, even maybe low 20s, and uh, some years are better than others. But you end up after a seven-year life at the same 18% IRR. But on our side, we had a lot more headaches and a lot more volatility versus the <laughs> other side. But there's still a market for that. There's still companies that need, and if we do a slightly better job, our IRR starts climbing a little quicker. So yeah, you do need diversification. You know, we often, when we're doing funding for our own funds, we're, we're offering a, a diversified portfolio and companies will say, yeah, but I can get 15% by investing on my own. Well, go ahead, but you're doing one-off investments that aren't diversified, you know? And, and so 
So yeah, it's a key fundamental premise of any smart investing, whether it's venture capital or, or mutual fund investing. You just have to have enough companies in your portfolio to properly diversify the risk. And that's different for a lot of people. So if you have a $10 million pool of capital, you should probably be doing deals on average of, you know, you should have 15 deals in there. So $750,000 each. If you have a billion dollar pool of capital, well, you can do larger deals. And so the scale, the companies that play in particular segments of the market, often it's a function of how much capital they have. A colleague of mine has $200 million under management. He does $15 million deals. You know, we have 90 million under management. We'll do $5 million deals. But in, in all cases, you need to have that diversification. Interesting. Okay, so we'll come on to the future in a minute, whether venture debt's growing, shrinking, whether it's geographic and spreading geographically or not. But just on one point that you mentioned when we were preparing the show, I spoke to a very reputable founder in the London market last week, and I happened to say, oh, by the way, do you know much about venture debt? Because there's always, I know very little about anything and, you know, I hadn't particularly heard of it and uh, I'm so used to not knowing anything about anything, it didn't surprise me. And they said, well, I vaguely know about it. I either had kind of a low-res JPEG in their mind and uh, they said, but I think it's expensive and I've got the feeling that if it goes wrong, you'll lose everything or they'll take your firstborn child or, or something like that. And so on, on the point about uh, on the point about is it expensive? Well, I, I really like your point, which is look, just get, just ask for a quote. You know, <laughs> if it's my new honey business tomorrow, of course it's going to be expensive. If you're a fintech that's been going ten years and you've got a sort of billion dollar uh, turnover and that, and it's a small amount, then it uh, may well not be. But in terms of things that spoil your whole day, like it didn't work out well, sadly, and then Rumpelstiltskin turns up and asks for your firstborn child. Uh, which would be a bit disappointing. What are the sort of funding terms that borrowers, that firms, uh, that founders need to be aware of? Because I think that certainly in the venture capital market, you know, you'd have to find a pretty naive founder who doesn't hire a lawyer to go over the sort of 55-page agreement that comes from the venture capitalists with what seemingly appears to be just an injection of, here's 10 million bucks. Oh, and as a document, I wouldn't worry about that too much. I don't think anyone falls for that anymore. <laughs> they go through the document to, to find out all the sort of the million terms and conditions. How does that work in the venture debt world in terms of what to be careful for, like checking that your firstborn child isn't, isn't mentioned? Yeah, let, let me just address the issue of expensive. One way is a rule of thumb to think about whether or not venture debt's expensive is, again, if you're very confident in your prospects, if the cost of our capital, my venture debt that I give you, my capital I give you on, a, on, a, on an absolute basis is less than the growth rate of your company, you should take our money. The reason is, is that you, if you're growing your business at 30% per year, your equity value is growing at least 30% per year, probably higher because as you get bigger, the equity value increases even. So if the total cost of my capital is 15%, you are putting way more money in your own pocket than you are in mine by taking venture debt. Now, you've correctly pointed out, there's a flip side. We are debt. Can have covenants, debt can have expectations, debt can have due dates. You can get on a treadmill of refinancing, which could be cumbersome. Look, there's no, there's some clauses that you want to be careful of as the company. Material adverse change clauses, which could put you into default. That means Something really bad happened, like a pandemic. We didn't see it coming, so we're going to call our debt. Be careful of that one. Another one would be an investor abandonment clause. So if we provided money to a venture-backed investment, they need more money, but the venture capitals are refusing to do it. That's an abandonment clause. We can call, we can call a default on that scenario. But look, the reality is, in many experiences, we've had deals that have gone under. I make nothing when the company goes under, when I push the company under. 
And sure, the, the executive makes nothing. And it, by the way, it's not me that puts the company under. It's bad execution, bad governance, silly mistakes by the founder. I just happen to be a source of capital. It's generally not in my interest. You get killed in the same car crash they get killed in. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So, so it's a little bit disingenuous to say, well, I'm going to lose everything because they're going to... No, if you screw up and you don't do a good job managing your business, then you're going to lose everything and I'm going probably down with you. I may get a 5% recovery or a 10 or a 50, in it, but, but those are hard. The amount of legal effort, the amount of the time, the erosion of the assets in the meantime, it's much better off for me to make either to, to start a recovery process early, which is really actually all about a strategic intervention in the direction of the company. It's us saying, hey, look, if you look at your numbers, you're burning cash too quickly. You haven't hit your forecast. You've extended this for six months out. You're in some really big trouble. How do we solve that problem today so that you don't go under and I don't lose my entire investment? So it's a very cooperative. At least we try to be cooperative. In fact, I'll be honest, almost all of my venture debt partners want to avoid bad deals altogether. They're expensive. They're time consuming. And, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. when they really go down, there's a very low chance of any recovery. So are we any worse than a venture capitalist? No. In terms of we will do our best to work with the company. What we try to do is you try to be proactive with those companies to, to help them, just like a venture capitalist was saying, look, you're going down the wrong path. Fix it now. Because you don't want to go eight years down the road or eight months down the road. It's going to be really ugly for everybody. Okay, so that's quite a good lead-in. I mean, the, the bigger level of venture capital, meaning equity and debt. Surprise, surprise, if you want to grow a business, these people aren't charities and you don't have to have venture capital you don't have to have equity or, or debt but you're probably going to grow a lot slower unless you've got a very rich uncle or you can find some institutional money or something like that but if you want to grow fast or you need huge scale to be global or be a billion dollar company you're going to need someone's money and someone's money is going to come with terms and you need a good lawyer to check out the terms you need to deal with reputable firms you need to check out their reputation and all that jazz it's no different but i think the only thing here coming back to this sort of low res JPEG. I mean, we live in such a complex world these days, which is that we can't possibly know everything. So for some things, we have a low res JPEG in our mind, and it's not, it's very low res. And I think it's because in the London market, venture equity is so well known, and everyone's got so many buddies, they know, oh, be careful of this, be careful of that, be careful of that. They've got a higher resolution thing about, look, there's a, there's a there's swamp there with crocodiles in, don't walk into that one. You know, there's a, the edge of a cliff there, don't walk off that cliff, and the, and the road's over here. So I think it's a, uh, my chum's comment, is um, a lack of familiarity one, which is that the market isn't so well known. And like all not well known things in life, you're a bit fearful of it because the human being wants to keep itself alive and you want to keep your business alive. So you're being a little bit uh, careful. So in terms of the spread of knowledge of venture debt, I assume it's well known, of course, in, in the West Coast in, in America. I assume it's well known in Toronto where, where you are. How is the geographic spread of going that? And what do you see the future of venture debt holding? Is it going to grow or shrink? You know, you make a good point about not knowing the terms. I think that's true, though, whether you're, whether you're taking equity investment or venture debt, most entrepreneurs are passionate about solving a fintech problem. They have no idea about what terms are when it comes to invest from, from an investor. But I will say just Google. There's a lot, a lot of, we have material on our site. A Cruise Consulting in, in Silicon Valley, he does a lot of work with smaller companies related to venture debt. I have a colleague who runs a venture debt company in London called um, uh, Columbia Lake Partners. They've got some great material on their site. If you literally just spend three hours Googling venture debt and, and terms, 
you'll educate yourself. So that's not a problem. Geographically, where is it going? It radiates out of Silicon Valley in terms of the knowledge that people have. But we're seeing venture debt funds start in India. We're seeing venture debt funds start in broader Europe, in Eastern Europe, as I've already mentioned, Columbia Lake in, in London. So, so it's actually, there, there's quite a few funds and a lot of funds, like for example, we've got one UK, one London-based investment, one of our best companies, we love them. And we have a couple other deals from London that are on our, because, because we're comfortable uh, with the legal environment and the language and a whole bunch of reasons why we're comfortable investing in the UK. But you'll see funds from, from Silicon Valley invest in Europe. So it's not so much about the local scene, about the local provider of capital. We tend to be hands-off. We don't get involved on the boards. We don't have the capacity to do so. Most venture debt providers don't, unless, as I, as I alluded to earlier, unless the, transaction, the deal's not working out as expected. So if anybody's looking for capital, just Google. There's plenty of venture debt providers. And there's creative versions of it, too. There's ones that'll do it just on your ad spend. There's ones that'll do it more fundamentally. There's there's uh, uh, there's ones that'll do a short-term loan. There's ones that'll do perpetual loans like we do. So there's all types and it, it's it's an industry to get to your question about the future. Geographically, I think you can get money anywhere, but it's becoming more and more creative in the types of offerings. 10 years ago, it was a straight amortizing loan with a little bit of warrant coverage. Then you got to a bullet loan, which was interest only until the due date with some warrant coverage. Now, we're doing things called revenue-based financing, which is really just a, some companies do a revenue-based loan that's really just a capped loan over five years. So a 20% return five years, it's another version of a bullet, but we'll actually give you permanent capital. It's like equity, but it gets a cash pay along the way, but it gets more expensive because it's more like equity and it's more at risk. So there's creative structures coming up all the time. And I think for the, you know, if any founder wants to educate themselves, look online, frankly, give me a call. We'd be happy to walk you through what some of the options are. Excellent. Well, one thing that occurs to me, which is that, I mean, going back to my book, I use the phrase the unlisted company for a good reason, that you, you can't really say small company. I mean, looking, just taking London FinTech, and London's not the biggest in, in the world in this. By a long way, America's far bigger and China's bigger than that in, in some contexts. There are still, I think I saw that two or three fintechs in London that are worth over $5 billion. That's not a small company, man. You know, 5 billion, and maybe in North American standards, it's a round of drinks, but to me, 5 billion, it'd take me a long time to save up 5 billion. And it's almost, I would, I would actually invert what we're just saying there. I would almost say that any board, talking of governments, any board of a company that's worth a billion and more, really needs to get out their basic corporate finance textbook and think what level of gearing is appropriate for this company. If you're that bloody big, okay, some of them have got problems on profitability, but anyway, at that size, you're massively bigger than what used to be a big company when I started my career 30 odd years ago, when it was axiomatic that you had to have a, a, a mix of equity uh, and debt. So I, I, would, I would flip that one around and say that the, the bigger companies really are being irresponsible if they're not considering this as an approach. Anyway, before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I hope many of you are worth billions or your businesses are in the future and my brand partners for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk, theenlistedboard.com, resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Alex, you've explained that very clearly. I certainly understand a hell of a lot more than I did at the beginning of the podcast, which is very good because that means that uh, the listeners 
wool also. In terms of flu cap, we haven't mentioned them very much. So would you like to get your flags out and, uh, and, and wave your flags and shout from the rooftops to the thousands of people ar- around the world? In terms of uh, who should be contacting you guys, what you need more of to, to make you even bigger and better in the future? Sure. First of all, Mike, I want to really thank you for your, the opportunity and the time and the interest. I think it's a growing sector and the more people we have focusing on it, the better. You know, before I, I, I wave the flag, I, I do want to say, look, if, if any companies are out there looking for venture debt or just venture capital, venture capital of any kind to grow your company, by all means, reach out to us. One thing I would say is the better prepared you are, the more quickly we can respond. So you don't have to have audited financials, but you have to have a reasonable financial perspective, you know, picture of how your company is doing. Governance, you mentioned earlier, governance is important to us and to uh, venture capital companies. But don't just pick up the phone and, and, and make a random call, but, but prepare yourself. The better prepared you are, the better for us. But then, look, we've got onboarding opportunities on our website where you can come in and just give us some of the key metrics. We love SaaS companies, for example. A lot of fintech companies are SaaS. And you'll get a quick answer. Our website is flowcap.com. One of the other things that is a challenge in our business, because we tend to focus on non-VC sponsored deals. We think there's more of them out there. It's, it's harder to find those deals. But we love to hear from lawyers or bankers or accountants or even venture capitalists who might not you know, traditionally use venture debt. If you've got a deal in your portfolio or a, or a client that needs a, a, a capital solution, by all means, reach out. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to talk to you and your client. You know, it's, it's really as simple as that. This is a bit of a relationship game. And the more people we talk to, the more we get the word out, the more likely we'll find those great deals. And nothing makes me happier than seeing a successful company. And we've We've had our fair share. In fact, we've, we've had some recent buyouts. So frankly, we're cash rich and deal poor. So more deals we see, the better. Excellent. Well, one of the interesting things about uh, there's always something new in the world, which is that um, I've been in FS now for 35 years and I should know a little bit uh, about it. Uh, the podcast has been going six years, um, but going back to low res JPEGs, it's an amazingly rich ecosystem and environment and so much is happening and so much is rising and, and so much is falling. I mean, back in the day, or I don't know, 20 years ago or something, when I was global head of risk, you know, mezzanine finance was quite a thing. And so everyone understood mezzanine and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and then that word sort of fades away. I mean, OK, it's still relevant in some sectors, uh, but, you know, then other things come along. And so the same kind of ideas get repackaged. But I think my revelation of this is, is the simple one, which is that your noddy MBA introduction or maybe even your A-level economics or business studies or whatever they are these days would tell you that businesses of any scale should have equity and debt and the debt is there to leverage the equity so therefore it's in the interest of the founders and I like your point about the uh, interest rate not in absolute terms which people tend to look at it oh it's liable plus 10% that's expensive well it might be compared to a mortgage on a house but your house ain't going to grow in value as much as your company should be if you're you know one of these businesses going from 10 to 100 to a billion to uh, to the sky's the limit. So um, that's been a, a super comprehensive overview, Alex. And as the listeners out there, I hope you all know something about it. And to those of you on boards, I hope you start asking founders of the, the bigger companies what they're considering about their equity debt mix. So I wish you every success in the future. And thank you for that. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at Mike at londonfintechpodcast.com.
sit in a bender all day, watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn, watching a happy moon rise, watching a happy moon rise. Come away from the city, but with the tarmac so dead and the people so sad. Come away from the city, but with the faces so gray, with the pain of the The mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance.